Today, joining me is Gina Gorlin, who studies and promotes morally ambitious self-creation. She's an assistant professor of clinical psychology in the Forkauf Graduate School of Psychology at Yeshiva University and a licensed psychologist practicing in New York City and online. She also provides psychological coaching to startup founders and other ambitious people, and she writes a Substack newsletter called Building the Builders. But today we're going to be mainly discussing a really fascinating piece that she wrote for Progress Forum titled Death is the Default, Why Building is Our Safest Way Forward. Gina, how are you? I am well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. So let's dive right into the piece. Uh, what is it about and what made you decide to write it? Sure. So when I say death is the default, I, of course, I'm not just talking about literal death, no mortality. I'm talking about the status quo, right? I'm talking about including the status quo where we die, where, you know, where everything moves toward entropy and chaos, right? Where kind of the universe left to its own devices tends toward kind of meaningless equilibrium and homeostasis and the kind of path of least resistance, right? And, and what moved me to write it really has been this constant theme that comes up a lot in my work with founders, uh, with people I coach, who are trying to do hard things, but also just sort of in our current world, you know, this kind of theme of being really afraid to take risks, being afraid to try something new, right? There's a general kind of aversion to the idea of building more nuclear power plants, right? Of kind of, of trying things in new ways, say in the mental health field, you know, where I have kind of, you know, lived and, and breathed where teletherapy, we're just like seeing patients across state lines is like this big deal. And there've been all of these artificial hurdles in our way because God forbid something unanticipated goes wrong where you're not in the same state, you know, forgetting that like the default is no mental health treatment, right? The default is a, a, an unfriendly, chaotic climate where we wouldn't survive for long right? if it weren't for all the inventions, including ones that run on you know, a lot of fossil fuels uh, and therefore have their own kind of residual costs that then I think we need to manage with new technologies, right? But like, if we don't do anything, we die. <laughs> we don't do anything, we either freeze to death or starve to death or you know, have really high rates of infant mortality. And so so it's just come up in so many different contexts, both individually, you know, kind of one-on-one, -on -one, just like people being really afraid to kind of take the leap and try something new, leave a relationship that's not working, you know, leave the comfort of their nine to five job and launch a startup, whatever it may be, and sort of the world at large and kind of just observing some of the same trends globally. Uh, so the enlightenment you write has numbed us to entropy. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, I've thought about this a lot. So I'm an immigrant and it's sort of extra fraught because I happen to be from Ukraine, which is oh my goodness. A kind of, it's, it's odd as you can imagine. And of course, you know, and painful and sad, but in the same ways it is for a lot of people, I don't have family left there, but it's, it's odd for my home country to suddenly be on everyone's minds. Um, but in any case, 
I was seven when we moved and, you know, it was a developing country. It was okay, a few years post-Soviet, but it was a different world. And, and I have this really vivid memory, a bunch of vivid memories, just all kind of back to back to back of just the complete shock and awe of coming into the Western world. Like, I just remember my first, um, what do you call them, automatic doors. And it was just like completely weird magic. Like my dad who knew, you know, that, that this airport, is, I think it was even, it was like the American embassy. We were on our way here, you know. And he said, okay, just put your hands down and just walk. I said, what? You just want me to walk into a door? Like, are you just completely, everyone's just lost their marbles? You know, and I started walking forward and it just opened before me, you know, and then remembering like, walking off the plane at JFK and then seeing a giant swirly lollipop and then seeing, and then my first supermarket was just a complete like mind boggling experience, right? And just all these ways that now, now I complain because they're out of my favorite flavor of yogurt, right? Like even I, I'm not gonna lie. Like it's just so easy to just get complacent and just sort of assume this is the default, assume this is the status quo. Like this stuff has always been there. What, how dare they not provide me with, my honey yogurt, Greek gods, you know, favorite kind of brand and flavor that I like to put in my oatmeal. Like it's, you know, my God-given right, <laughs> the yogurt I want when I want it. And it's just, I know it's crazy because I've seen the difference. And so for people who've just never experienced the a different kind of life, a different kind of world, I think it's just so easy to assume like this stuff just has always been here, right? And I think the enlightenment is responsible for a lion's share of those changes with, you know, with modern medicine and with the industrial revolution, with it, never mind, you know, being able to fly to our destinations, being able to, you know, I mean, and never mind the whole technological revolution that followed and, you know, everybody being on a, a microcomputer 24 hours a day. So, yeah, so I think it's numbed us to the fact that none of this is guaranteed, right? It could all go away. It all requires human agency and choice to maintain and build upon. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great point, putting first world problems into perspective there. Um, what is, though, the concept of entropy? How would you define it? And why is the concept of entropy, you write, the first keystone in understanding the human condition? Yeah, yeah. So I have to credit um, Steve Pinker for Pinker, this point. Yes. Yeah, so it's from, you know, I'm sort of referencing enlightenment now. So literally, yes. you know, this is kind of his take on the enlightenment and on the enlightenment values that we, in his view, right, can need to re-embrace and need to understand. And he really explains this point well, and it was a big eye-opener for me that, you know, we, we have the second law of thermodynamics, which in my lay understanding, it basically, it describes the fact that left to their own devices, you know, without sort of some kind of external energy can transfer into a system, the system tends to move toward disorganization and chaos, randomness, right? It's just things just kind of get evenly distributed throughout the atmosphere. And there's no real kind of, you know, like any really like coherent organized state of affairs is extremely improbable in the state of nature, basically, right? So entropy is just chaos. It's just sort of disorder, it's randomness. And his point is like, that's the state of the world by default. That is just how things are, unless we act upon them in order to make them different, right? in order to make them go differently. Absolutely. Um, so 
that relates to this next question when you wrote we build or we die could you talk a bit about that and the power of agency and what you mean by that yeah yeah so i think what i really want to capture and what what's been a big insight for me over the years and i've i think just been coming to understand it kind of more and more recently is that a lot of the things that we attribute to like human malice or folly they're just incompetence and they're just the, because the the building the thing is really hard like solving the i mean any of the problems that we face that we gripe you know inflation poverty racism like take i mean even it's sort of i think harder to think about with something like a war because then there is real human evil and there's real intent but like then if you think but what are the kind of systems and incentives that have been put in place in order to, you know, like why are there more wars in certain centuries than other centuries? And like, what did people set up politically, socially, culturally in order to either make it easier or harder to, to you know, beat each other up and to dominate each other by force versus engage in voluntary exchange, right? So like even there, there's a bunch of choices involved. And, you know, when we think about like, why has the, the American experiment, despite all the flack and all the criticism against and all the real flaws and probably like, why has it been so massively successful compared to kind of every prior political experiment? Like it's an ingenious document, the constitution and not just the constitution, but like the whole idea of the checks and balances that were set up to in large part to control people's irrational tendencies, right? And to sort of make it really hard for a tyrant for any one, you know, evil, mean, dictatorial, irrational, crazy person to kind of change things up too quickly in a chaotic direction, right? Or to kind of do too much harm all in one fell swoop because there are all of these different checks in place and all that had to be built, right? Like, and it's imperfect. It needs to get, it needs a lot of work. It needs improvement if we want to, if we want it to be even more resilient and if we want it to be even fairer to, you know, to kind of every human regardless of, you know, skin color or origin, et cetera, right? But like, it's already a massive achievement and it we can lose it, right? And so the building, it's like the default is not, well, now that we have it, we can just kind of coast and, you know, rest on the laurels of the founders. Like we know that's not true because here we are watching our freedoms get eroded in various areas of our lives because we're not continuing the kind of vigilant intellectual work of thinking about what we need to build and how we need to update our institutions and sort of what are the principles we need to carry forward and what does it look like, which is in implementation. So that's what I mean, you know, we have to keep building. We have to kind of keep, things are always changing and we've got to build for the environment that we find ourselves in and for the changes that, the, the, um, the, you know, COVID being obviously a big example, right? Like we build, you know, we, just, we develop vaccines, we develop distribution systems that actually get the necessary, you know, the masks and protective equipment and hospital beds, et cetera, et cetera, to the people who need them or we die, right? That's a kind of very straightforward case. Absolutely. Now might be a good time to zoom out and talk about building. You keep coming back to this word of building. Your substack yeah. is called Building the Builders. This piece we're discussing, discussing is, you know, build or die. What do you mean by build and who is a builder in your mind so yeah no thank you for asking because i've gotten so it's gotten so native to me that i forgot to define it right but what i mean by building is applying our intelligence 
to the deliberate purposeful creation of value that sustains or improves human life. And that could be so many different things, right? That could be anything from like writing a poem that brings joy, right? And that somebody wants to read and that brings you joy and that helps you to then find energy for your next endeavor. That could be doing a really good day's work at the grocery store where you're re offering really excellent customer service and you know, you're providing a needed um, you're providing needed goods and kind of a needed transactional role, but also you're brightening people's days because you're doing it with a smile. And, you know, because so there's so many different senses of build, not just the obvious ones where like you have a startup or, you know, you're like literally building archi architecture or what have you. <laughs> I the last bit. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And related to that, could you give some examples of the act, specific examples of the act of building or of builders? Looking through your Substack, I see some specific names like Frederick Douglass. But as you were just saying with that grocery store example, it, it doesn't have to be a world-changing heroic uh, change that someone is no. enacting in order to be a builder, right? Incremental progress can also be a part of that. So what do you... Uh, what are some examples of builders? Who is a builder? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll try to give a deliberately broad range because it's so because it's so all encompassing. It's really, it's the way that humans live and thrive in the world. So all and people are builders. All people are builders, or at least certainly have the potential to be builders. And to the extent that they're doing something valuable in a way where they're awake to what they're doing, then they're building. Right. So a student who's writing a term paper and researching and like putting together, you know, citations from different sources, they're like they're building some knowledge, even if it's for themselves, so that then they can kind of build on that knowledge in order to then be able to, you know, make really good judgment calls working as a consultant somewhere or be a teacher or whatever they might end up being. But like all of the incremental steps involve building. Right. Or like when you build a schedule for yourself, right? Like when you kind of are figuring out, okay, so if I sleep in until, you know, 9.30, then I don't actually end up having enough time to get to work or I have to I end up having to rush. And I really want like 10 minutes of just being able to meditate or just being able to, you know, veg out or have a tea. So, okay, let me think, I need to set my alarm 10 minutes earlier for that, but that's gonna be really hard. Maybe I put it on the other side of the room. Like you're building something, you're building a better routine for yourself. All of that is building. And on the larger scale, when you build a company, when you build an, a culture within an organization, right? When you build a relationship or build a scalable approach to relationships, right? Or everything in between. Absolutely. Um, why do you say that becoming the kind of person who can and does regularly engage in building, why do you say that is a profound achievement given that building is something we're doing all the time? It's very widespread. Yeah, it's a really good question. So even thinking about the really mundane examples I just gave, like thinking through your routine and making deliberate changes so that you can achieve your goals better. Like how much of the time are we actually doing that? 
like even just each of us thinking about our own lives, like how many times when we are aware that there's like, eh, there's a little bit of an imperfection, you're like, my day could go better if only I would get up a bit earlier. How often do we actually then think that through, right? And like do something about it. That's hard. It means like pushing against our own inertia, right? It means resisting entropy, resisting the urge to just sleep another 10 minutes because it feels really good in the moment or, you know, and just like having to then explain to people that you're going to be doing things differently and then they're going to be annoyed. And then what if they don't like what you're doing? And then that, you know, will create social friction. And it's really hard. And that's just on this really kind of local example of like adding 10 minutes to your morning routine, right? And then the way that that adds up to like, how do we approach our jobs? How do we approach our relationships? Like how often do we actually make a really intentional kind of effortful project of of changing how we communicate with somebody, right? Of changing or of really like, instead of kind of just going through the motions of whatever work we've been assigned, you know, say we're the grocery store clerk, right? Of like, just being in total autopilot mode, like, okay, yes, I'm gonna scan, right? Like, how often do you actually really consider like, how do I want this day to go? And how, what energy do I want to be emitting, right? To the people that, and like, I'm choosing this job. This job is actually, is bringing value to my life. And it's part of a trajectory. Like, it, I think the really hard and necessary thing is that we're building our lives. And that's, we have to have that perspective to then be thinking about how we wanna set up this routine or how we wanna be at work, right? Or it's sort of like, we have to have a perspective on, I'm in charge of how my life goes. And that's really hard. And I think takes a lot of virtue and courage and discipline and all those things. And perhaps, optimism as well, which leads to this next question. Yeah. You write that counterintuitively internalizing the perspective that death is the default leads to a more fundamentally optimistic and forgiving outlook on ourselves and our fellow human beings and the world. Why is that? Yeah, it's such a paradoxical, but I think deep truth about this kind of realization that it's actually up to us, right? Like what it means that death is the default. A, it means it's not necessarily like, we don't have to beat ourselves up because the relationship went south or the company didn't work. You know, that's the default. That's just, that would have happened without our efforts. That's just what happens by default, right? Like that's just the universe doing its thing. That's A. So a lot of what I think we've spent time and energy beating ourselves up about, we can kind of just accept as, oh, like that's just reality, that's just baseline, right? And B, it's actually up to me. I think there's something extremely empowering, I think, in realizing like, I have the agency, like I am the force in the universe that can disrupt entropy. Like I have that unique power vested in me for as long as I'm conscious and alive and you know mobile, or even just like as long as I have my, my mind, you know, even if I'm down to one pinky, right? I can still figure out a way to communicate. I can still make something happen. I can still change the course of events. Like that's the power. That's what it means to be human. And I can take credit for that, right? Like, and I should, and I need to, I need to celebrate those victories because they're actually, they're not the default. They're up to me. I need to celebrate the achievement of a really good day at work or like a change in my routine for the better. Like that's, I'm building my life. I'm taking ownership with every little choice that I make. So that's pretty cool, I think. <laughs> it is. You also write that 
what we often take for granted is just how much human ingenuity, iterative experimentation, and messy trial and error has gone into generating whatever solutions we now take as given. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, there was a lovely tweet by I think one of the Collison brothers a little while ago about sort of this adult realization that everything that you just sort of take for granted around you, like someone had to come up with and build and perfect over time. And that's really at the heart of kind of this point of getting in. And, you know, my comment on that was sort of like, so Montessori, who's who has an education philosophy that I think aligns really nicely with a lot of what I'm getting at here. It, it, she's got this approach to really instilling appreciation and gratitude and awe in young children for the incredible achievements of humankind, which is like, even just like, you know, this beautiful brown spoon, or, you know, or the, the, like the silverware and the placemat and the arrangement of the furniture, like all of it was so thoughtfully crafted and all of it, you know, is it's tailored to your literal size and to your needs. And then sort of telling the story of you know, like who had to invent, you know, like first humans had to even learn how to sort of like extract raw materials, right? From the earth. And they had to realize that like that material has certain properties and they had to understand how to like, how to put things together that previously, you know, like I, I have no idea. The fact is if I ask myself like, how would I build this chair? Like I act, there's a lot of missing steps that I would have to go look up or ask somebody, right? Or like, how, do, how would I prepare this meal for that matter? I mean, I'm not much of a chef at all. And I marvel at the, just the way that people can just recombine ingredients, right? To make something delicious and, you know, and healthy and new, but just everything around us, when you actually pause and you ponder like, what? series of discoveries and inventions and iterations and trial and error went into making this, right? Like for all, even the things that seem so trivial to us now, but like rest on, you know, the shoulders of many human giants, like figuring things out from scratch. So this mindset can clearly help people make progress, but you also write that one of the hardest parts can be figuring out the nature of the problem you're trying to address before yes. you can actually tackle it. Could you talk a little bit more about that in terms of human progress? Yeah, I mean, there are problems that I don't even think we currently understand very well, where I think that that is the going challenge, that is the problem to solve. And it might be the hardest of all the problems. Like once we get that right, the rest, it will never be easy. It'll never be the default, right? But but for, so just to take an example, I'm a psychologist and I have been trained in the treatment of mental health disorders, right? And providing various kinds of therapy, now also coaching. But here's the thing, within my field, there's no actual agreement on what we're trying to accomplish when we do therapy. There's a whole bunch of different views on like, we are trying to reduce symptoms, we're trying to reduce suffering. No, that's not the point. The point is we're trying to improve quality of life. We're trying to improve people's well-being. No. I mean, sure, that, that's nice by itself, but like someone needs to actually be grounded in reality. So we need to be helping them to, you know, especially like if someone is psychotic, like they may tell us that their quality of life is amazing, but like, meanwhile, they're going out in the street and they might actually get themselves killed. So are we gonna take their word for it, right? So like, what are we trying to improve? What are we trying to achieve to affect? 
we don't agree with each other on that. like there's tons of disagreement and controversy within the field on like what are the important outcomes which even affects like what do we measure like how do we know if we're successful at a given therapeutic intervention like and we often don't agree with our patients and patients don't agree with within themselves or with each other. like what's really important to me is it important to me is longevity the thing i'm going to optimize on or do I want a life filled with, you know, exhilaration and stimulation, in which case, like, maybe I'm willing to risk a few extra years of life for the sake of getting to go on this, you know, incredible thrill ride or getting to climb, you know, be the first free solo climber to scale whatever th that mountain was. You know, the, the guy that they made the documentary about that I sort of can't help but sympathize with, but also it seems insane, right? So that's a really familiar to me example where, like, we don't understand the problem. Right, like what are we trying to solve for? What does it mean to live well? What does it mean to have well-being? And we and like that's a question for which like there's tons of philosophical work that is still ongoing, but that started, you know, millennia ago, and it's sort of still not a settled question. It's really hard to answer, and people argue about it. And it, you know, it's not just like a pick a you know, flip a coin, pick a side. It's arbitrary willy-nilly. Like there are real reasons why you might think. It's important to have a life where there aren't major contradictions and things are kind of flowing in a consistent direction versus suffering and pain suck. And, you know, you've got a utilitarian approach of like, we want to kind of the greatest good for the greatest number, but then how do you measure that? And does everyone's good matter equally? Does Putin's good matter as much as, I don't know, I don't know who else is good, <laughs> whatever. I may have feelings, right? But the point is, we haven't figured out the problem and i think that there are lots of areas like the education is notoriously like that like what is education actually trying to accomplish and then you know to answer that we already need a lot of iteration and sort of experience but in so doing we don't know toward what we're iterating and so we have to take into account that like we're going to have to keep moving the goalposts as we understand that that wasn't the right goal so it's hard to define the problem especially in the human realm <laughs> Yeah, so we don't always understand the problems we're up against. We do know that the default is entropy and we're up against that. But you also say that entropy is not evil, even though it's something we're fighting against. What do you mean by that? I mean, like is a thunderstorm evil? Mm -hmm. It just is, right? Is you know, And I could say the same for any sort of random weather event, right? Is it evil that sometimes or avalanches or you know is COVID evil I mean if we come up with a conspiracy theory where it was like carefully designed in order to cause maximum havoc and there's a temptation to do that and I I don't know the answers to like where you know I definitely have zero expertise on whatever is now known about whatever the origins of COVID but the point is like we want an explanation that imbues intentionality on these things right but the fact is like that diseases exist that little microbes are going to try to replicate themselves like nobody i, I don't think I, I don't think that ultimately like i'm mad at COVID. like i i could be but i don't i don't think it would be rational because i don't think that it's like got malicious intent it's just doing the thing that little well, however many cellular organisms do to reproduce themselves they're just by the nature of what they are and they're not agential right like Entropy is what happens in the absence of agency, in the absence of will, whereas evil implies a will, right? It implies like ill intent, which in many cases is actually just not the explanation 
for stuff going wrong. Agreed. Uh, you speak of the uniquely human aspect to overcoming nature's defaults, writing dysfunction, ineptitude, hunger, and death are not a personal affront or a divine punishment for wrongdoing. They are defaults. Operational excellence, competence, abundance, and flourishing are always and everywhere achievements, the distinctly human mode of overriding nature's defaults. This is a really interesting uh, view of humanity. Can you talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, I'm at, at the heart of this article and a lot of the work I'm doing is I want to share my reverence for human greatness and for, for humans at our best. And I think that it's such a key insight, a, a kind of key awareness, like a felt awareness, a felt understanding. And it's a feeling. It's there, There's a, a kind of deep appreciation and really an awe, right? An admiration in realizing, wow, like someone had to figure all of this out, right? All of it had to be built. The fact that at my job, I have this nine to five schedule where like there are all these different, you know, steps that I go through and I put things into an Excel, like someone had to come up with Excel. That wasn't always there. Someone had to figure out, someone had to figure out how to like talk to computers eh, and then figure out how to like, and if you think about all the little ways it's customized to sort of the human mind and to the, you know, it's like, okay, it's actually, it's intuitive for me to figure out where to find an old file that like, that wasn't always there. Windows weren't always there. DOS, remember DOS? Like some of us are old enough, that, like where we would like type some sort of command and there was just nothing to tell us how to find anything, right? Like just to be able to appreciate like all of this was work and ingenuity and creativity. And like people went wrong a bunch of times before figuring it out and they're still gonna keep improving upon it and we can contribute to that, right? And what it looks like to contribute to that is A, to like appreciate and try to really understand what's already been built and to really like, I think a big part of this is like studying history, which I don't think we do by default, especially kind of with our current educational so system and priorities, but I think it's so important to like actually learn about how these things came to be and sort of what were all the human struggles and sort of the heroic you know, battles against both nature and, you know, irrational human elements to kind of get to this point. And that's why, you know, I cite people like Frederick Douglass, like Katie Carrico, who just thanklessly slaved away, not literally having just referenced Frederick Douglass, right, but labored <laughs> with a very kind of low paying, low status academic job where she was always like dependent on another principal investigator, you know, in someone else's lab. And other people just would have quit. They just would have given up. They would have felt so unappreciated, which, and she was, but she just kept at it because she had, she's like, I, I'm, I'm on to something here, this RNA thing. There's like, this could be huge. And I'm just gonna keep chipping away at it. And I'm gonna just do one experiment after another because like, oh, like I think we could get, like, can you imagine like we can make your body think this is the actual virus. How cool and important with that? Like, let's just keep working at it. And then she delivered us from what could have been a much worse, if we could imagine a much more enduring and even deadlier pandemic by developing this technology. Like, to be able to appreciate the story right behind that shot 
that we all went to get. That's a great point that we're not only going up against entropy, but also human irrationality and our own biases. And you speak about the status quo bias in the piece. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So whether it's, we could separately debate whether this feature of human thinking is innate, whether it's learned, whether it differs culture by culture. But the fact is just sort of observationally, most people tend to prefer to keep things as they are versus changing things, all else being equal, right? So like when you ask somebody, okay, so imagine that you had the option to stay in your current house or trade in your current house for this like awesomer house where if you, if, and you give them access to all the information they need in order to realize like, this would be a huge savings for me. This would give me access to more of the stuff that I want. This would like actually massively improve my life in the long run. But like, I would have to move. They will choose staying in their current house. And there are just lots and lots of experiments like this that have been done that wh whether they're sort of hypothetical thought experiments where people are actually given certain options where they just like, they think that the current thing is safer. They think the current thing is easier. They don't, and there's, part of what they're indexing on is like the in, initial uh, resistance they have to put up against inertia, right? Because it is, because change does require pushing against entropy and that's work, right? And that can feel like a huge hurdle. But what we're not modeling is the subsequent future where actually things are way better for us on the other side. You also write about how innovating change and so forth can be socially risky and yet it's still safer to build than not what do you mean by that yeah i mean so the fact is you know most people have a status quo bias most people will tend to prefer what they know and what's familiar and the way things are already being done to trying something new and so you live in a world of people so yeah, if you say, you know what, I think we should change up how we do our, you know, HR people management or how we do this reporting. I think we should get rid of this weekly standup and we should try doing Slack updates and stuff, or, you know, whatever it is, small, big or small, people are going to resist. People are going to, and you don't know in advance, like who's going to be prickly and who's going to take it personally and who's going to think that like you're just, you know, completely you're, you're like rocking the boat in ways that just feel completely kind of you know unacceptable like we've always done it this way for a reason and maybe they're really wedded to it or maybe they're like like all their ulterior motive. you just you never know but you know like you're going to face some sort of resistance and even if nobody has particular objections like the default is still that they're just not going to do it because change is hard <laughs> right it takes agential energy and so you're going to have to wrangle people you're going to have to sort of own it and nobody's going to own it by default. And I've seen this and struggled with it myself so many times. We're like, we all have this great meeting where we all decide together, like, we're going to do this great new, you know, project, or we're going to have this great initiative where now every time one of us, you know, has a really great conversation with a client, we're going to write up a little blurb about it. We're going to send it out to each other. Awesome. Let's do it. We're going to make this. And then it, like a month goes by few months go by and nobody's doing it. And you're thinking, uh, but guys, we all agreed that this is a good idea. Oh yeah, that was a great idea. Oh, well, but you know, something came up and I didn't really think of it at the time because there were all these, 
It's just, it's not the default, right? So living in a world of people means wrangling, right? It's sort of like, if you want to make a change, probably the change won't just involve you. And so you're gonna also be taking on sort of the social work, right? the social cost, the kind of the human kind of personnel management involved in wrangling change <laughs> and sort of dealing with whatever friction arises, dealing with, you know, whatever social fallout there might be. Absolutely. You, uh, you say the whole notion of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as it's commonly understood and invoked today, suggests that we cannot afford the luxury, which you put in quotes, of exercising our creative and intellectual powers when our basic needs are threatened and going against convention and taking those social risks can also threaten those needs. Um, but you say, as if exercising these powers weren't precisely what has allowed us to face down such threats throughout human history. That's a really powerful point. Could you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. This became very real to me with COVID when people's basic needs, or again, of course, in a context where like we all have Zoom and we all have Facebook and we all still have, you know, our like comfy air conditioned you know, apartments, but people lost their jobs. People didn't know how they were gonna pay rent. People didn't know where their next paycheck was gonna come from. People were really afraid of getting sick or got sick or had family members who were seriously you know, in, in, in danger. And a lot of the kind of default assumptions about how do I sort of make, you know, A, make a living, especially people who are performing artists for whom I just have felt such tremendous sympathy and just, as someone who kind of depends on the kind of spiritual nourishment of Broadway and jazz and swing dancing and just all the kind of artistic output that you know exists around me, it, it hurt and it hurt on behalf of you know all the musicians I knew who just, they didn't know if they were ever going to have work again, and and so it's it, so there was this feeling and there was this picture going there was a meme going around of like Maslow's hierarchy. And like at the bottom was like toilet paper and Wi-Fi or <laughs> something like that. And it was, and the joke was, guys, like, let's not get too highfalutin right now about like, what's the meaning of life or our self actually Like, we just need to survive. We just need to get through this horrible, you know, crisis. And my thing was now more than ever, you need to think about the meaning of life. Like now more than ever, you need to be rallying those internal resources. Of, like, who do I want to be? Do I want to be? The person who kind of just like sits this out and just kind of lets my skills go to waste and just like ends up begging for scraps and like isn't able to fend for himself or like do I want to be someone who rises to the occasion like and what what are the risks I'm willing to take like what is my personal risk profile am I would I rather go and be you know a food delivery person and like at least be offering this bit of comfort and solace to people who right now can't go out of their homes and make a, you know, at least some cash that I can then put toward continuing my voice lessons or continuing with, you know, with my craft, whatever that may be. Or do I just want to like be miserable and lose hope, right? Like when is it more important than that, right? And the ways that people innovated, like they figured out ways to have virtual concerts and now a lot of those formats will exist, right? And we will have access to so much more art in so many different forms because of COVID and the ways that force people to innovate and be creative. So that's what I mean. Like in a crisis more than ever, we need to leverage those highest 
creative intellectual powers, which is how we survive. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic regarding resilience, human resilience? There were interesting findings regarding kind of mental health trends during the pandemic, such mm -hmm. that, so you would expect, for example, health anxiety, OCD, right? The kinds of kind of pathological tendencies toward exaggerated perceptions of threat, you know, exaggerated worry would like skyrocket, but they didn't. It was actually really interesting to see that people who sort of routinely worry about these things and routinely kind of are, are kind of overestimating the threat of, you know, disease, plague, whatever, actually, if anything, they had more measured ways of coping with the pandemic. And mm -hmm. if anything, they were sort of able to, I think in some ways it kind of normalized for them, like, haha, now everyone's worried about what I've been worried about. <laughs> and I think in some ways it actually sort of took some of that pressure off and like they were able to cope, they were resilient. A lot, I mean, they, obviously I don't want to paint with a broad brush stroke, plenty of people struggled and continue to struggle. And mm -hmm. off, you know, many through absolutely no fault of their own. It's a really hard time that we've all been through, but like, it's also brought out incredible heights of, you know, resilience and heroism and creativity, innovation in people, including people who didn't think of themselves that way before the pandemic. And I think rose to the occasion. I think it was actually a kind of impetus for people who, you know, now they didn't have to imagine a catastrophe. It's sort of like, there's a real catastrophe happening and like, oh, this is a real catastrophe. And like, I'm not helpless. There's actually like a lot I can do. And I can probably educate people about how to, you know, mind their hygiene because I've been doing it all along. And now people are actually interested in what I have to offer. And maybe I can actually write some useful, you know, tweets or like blog posts about this and be there for people who are struggling. So I think it was the opposite of, you know, I think it was an invitation to agency for a lot of people. We've touched on this already a bit, but you also write, we need to shed our complacent post-enlightenment assumption that human health, happiness, freedom, employment, education, and flourishing are automatic, to be expected defaults, and recognize them instead for the hard-won human achievements that they are. That's another really compelling uh, sentence in your work. Would you expand upon it? Thank you. Yeah, I think I see a lot of this. I mean, and sometimes I succumb to it, this sort of begrudging, bemoaning of, you know, all of the inequities and all of the violence and all of them. I mean, you know, our culture right now is rife with sort of like whatever side of the political alley you're on, you've got grievances and those grievances loom large and loud, right? And, and it all feels like, okay, well, someone is doing this to us. Like if only they would just cut it out. Like if only they would stop treating us unfairly. And if only they would stop hoarding all that wealth so that we could have our share, like, you know, then things would just sort of resolve and we could all like, why can't, you know, it's like the John Lennon song, like world, what, what is the, you know, imagine there, there's no countries, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like it's this really like nice dream of like, why can't we all just get along forgetting none of us know how to do that. <laughs> like that's not the default, right? Like it's really hard to figure out how to, for, you know, I mean, thinking of parents who have siblings, uh, you know, who have more than one child and like 
have to basically be household managers, right? And sort of figure out like, how do I both attend to the fustiness of my two-year-old toddler who like really needs to know that I love her and that I'm paying attention and you know, the like very particular kind of obsessiveness or the like particular very different needs of my four-year-old who like needs me to solve this like very practical problem for her but also needs me to know that I don't just love the two-year-old because the four-year-old has sometimes felt neglected and like how do I feed them both while also ensuring that I'm not doing some sort of terrible emotional damage by sending the wrong signals to one or the other or both and how do I not let them tear each other apart in the process it's so hard. And that's just two little people that we have basically total autonomy over right like how do you do it with the whole society? <laughs> like if we actually think about the nature of the problem, like it's a really hard problem. And the fact that we've come this far, the fact that we have these whole large institutions, you know, if we think about all the things we now do together in unison, in harmony, where like we can trust that, you know, we can make an online transaction and trust that like we'll receive the item and that it's in good faith and that it will come in nice packaging and that nobody's gonna like tear it open somewhere along the way right like there's a whole chain of like multiple delivery people right and vehicles that have to convey it from one end to the other and like we figured out how to coordinate all of that so that everybody's winning all along the way right like so basically and so everyone gets to make choices about what they want to do with their time and their lives and hopefully also even getting paid to do it right like what a massive incredible achievement and yeah, like we're about to be in a huge recession and now a bunch of us will get laid off and now a bunch of us won't be able to take that for granted anymore. And that's a good reminder that none of this is automatic. None of it's the default. It's not guaranteed, right? And so I think really just reorienting around like, wow, like that we've figured out any of this at all is amazing and we should celebrate that and we should keep building. Right, and keep problem solving because none of it's the default. And you're doing a lot of work to help people try to figure all of this out, right? I, I have some questions from some other things I've seen on your Substack, but first I want to give you the opportunity to describe what your Substack is all about and why people should check it out. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is sort of a mindset, right? Like how to adopt the mindset of a builder kind of what are the things that you want to have in mind? What are the things you want to be able to take ownership of, right? Things that you want to be able to kind of understand and realize like these are not defaults, right? Like, a I mean, the kind of psychological profile and perspective that all that adds up to, it's not easy to build. Again, like most of us, we come in, we, we, you know, we've got our status quo biases, we've got our sort of just like risk aversion and our fear of change and also our particular insecurities and uncertainty is really scary and really hard to manage. And often whatever the status quo is at least gonna feel easier and safer and in some and will be easier and you know, if not ultimately safer in the long run, right? And it it takes a certain kind of character, it takes a certain practiced approach to life. Like you've got to be able to face a bunch of fears before you aren't overwhelmed every time in the face of them, for example. And you've got to do that incrementally. And there's a science and an art you know, which I've studied and trained in to, to sort of exposing ourselves to things we fear in a way that doesn't completely overwhelm us, but like does actually help us to move the needle on like kind of what we're able to face without feeling really overwhelmed or feeling kind of paralyzed, you know, 
we're feeling like we have to like run away and like what's the kind of optimal level of challenge right like that a lot of thinking has gone into figuring that out and the same goes for like how do we think about our own sort of long-term goals and medium like when do we want to be future oriented and when do we want to be thinking more about the present and there's you know all kinds of opinions about that how should we be motivated like should we be motivated by should we be trying to sort of like give ourselves stickers and rewards or is that like a cheap you know kind of shortcut to motivation like should we be trying to find you know the intrinsic motivation in what we're doing and like how do we do that like should we be meditating a lot should we be keeping a journal right like there's so much advice out there and some of it's contradictory none of it works for everyone and so just what i've been trying to do is figure out given my interest in builders and in building and that that is sort of like my holy mission is to inspire and empower more building in the world and i'm a psychologist like what i'm building are the builders i'm trying to figure i'm trying to like kind of put together the toolkit for like building ourselves into the kinds of people who can build what we want to build on the scale that we want to build it. Relating to some of those points on motivation, I see that you have an entire post uh, sort of critiquing the idea of intrinsic motivation. I would love to hear you explain that. Sure. Yeah. So in psychology, there's this distinction. And, and obviously, it's not just in psychology. It's sort of permeated the culture now, right? where you've got extrinsic motivators like you know money or stickers or grades or somebody's praise or you know you name it or punishments on the other side right so external motivators could be rewards or punishments but it's like something external to the thing you're doing that you're trying to like get or avoid um, right depending which it is and then there's this like magical a kind of ideal motivation which is this intrinsic motivation where you just love what you're doing and it's just rewarding and joyful of itself and you're doing it for its own sake. And you're like in a state of flow, right? It's like that magical state of flow. And there are some people who chase that flow experience like to the point of almost an addiction. But I think for, for all of us, like there's something really enticing in that concept. And we want that, you know, we, we want to experience our lives as much as possible, like enjoyable, right? Like we want to enjoy what we're doing. Like there's something really intuitive in that. But I think, the idea of intrinsic motivation, even though it's actually been really improved upon kind of within my field, the people who came up with this distinction in psychology, that's in Ryan, whom I love, and I've drawn a lot of inspiration from them and from their work, they've actually really added a lot of nuance to the original theory, where now, so their theory is called the self-determination theory. And what they really now distinguish between, basically they've identified that there's this continuum of motivations where, what it, what you can vary on is how self-determined the motivation is like to what extent is it sort of flowing from your own needs your own interests your own values you're choosing it for the sake of like goals that you care about and so you sort of know why you're doing it and it's coming from within versus to what extent is it sort of you, you feel like the, the, the cause of your own action is outside of you like something else is imposing it on you something apart from your own kind of needs and goals and values is making you act. And I think that's a really useful distinction. But interestingly, they still kept intrinsic motivation as this like separate thing at the very top of their continuum. It's like the most self-determined you get is when you don't have to even worry about reasons because it's just intrinsic. And I think that's a kind of cop-out because there are always reasons. And all the activities that we do and the way we experience what we're doing it's always connected to our conception of what is it going to affect and like what 
like, what are we building? What consequences is this actually going to have for my life, for the people I care about, for my future, for for the things that sort of matter to me, like what am I putting out into the world and how is this going to set me up later for other goals, you know, that I care about? What skills am I building, right? So even kind of the things we think of as like the stereotypically intrinsic kind of activities, like we are playing a game or we're just, you know, enjoying a conversation with colleagues where it's like, where it's just so intellectually stimulating and we're just sort of in it for its own sake. Yeah hopefully if things are working right, we enjoy it more when we're actually getting something done. And part of what we're enjoying is that we're getting something done. And we know that, oh, like this is actually giving us more clarity. We're gonna actually be able to use what we've talked about to improve our processes down the line or you know, to offer our customers something better or whatever. Versus like, we're just like shooting the shit, you know, we're just chatting and it's really fun, but like it's actually wasting time that could be put towards something that matters to all of us, like that's not as fun, especially if you realize it. If you don't realize it, that's worse. And that's gonna cost you later, even if it's really fun in the moment, <laughs> right? And so is that the intrinsic motivation we want? No, like we don't wanna be deluded into thinking something really great is going on when actually we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot for later, right? So I just don't think it's ever helpful to think in terms of intrinsic motivation. Like we wanna think in terms of like, why are we doing this? And what's our understanding of sort of the causes and effects that we're operating on? Okay, so that's not helpful. For my <laughs> last question, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on what is helpful because at humanprogress.org, we're always interested in cultivating discussions on the factors that go into creating progress. Mm -hmm. We tend to focus more on policies and institutions, but as a psychologist, I'm curious what your insights are on the kinds of mindsets that the people watching or listening to this podcast can cultivate to contribute to progress in whatever manner. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. That's, that question is sort of my baby. <laughs> yeah. So, so I've, I've tried to summarize a lot of it under this kind of tagline of the builder's mindset. And I refer readers, if anyone's interested in checking out like a summary of what I mean. Um, it's called the builder's mindset, a way out of the, uh, the drill sergeant Zen master dichotomy, I think is what it's called. But if you just look up, it's on my Substack. So I think there's a kind of distinctive mindset that we can think about first, just like in the context of anything we're doing that's work, but then we can think like how it applies to basically everything where we could either on the one hand, we could like care about the process, but not try to get, try not to get too attached to outcomes. Like, you know, we're all about the intrinsic motivation, the flow, the, you know, present moment, but let's not get too attached because we can't control the outcomes. That's sort of what I'm calling the Zen master. Or on the other hand, you know, there's this common approach of like pushing ourselves really hard and yelling at ourselves and being really hard on ourselves and, you know, like being really worried about failure in a way that like sometimes motivates us in the short term, but like at the cost of misery and burnout and also tends to push us toward like conventional standards and goals versus like, but what do I want to build? And so I think what's unique, like I think there's a third way and that's sort of what I'm trying to describe the, the third kind of mindset that really just isn't either of the other two, even though we tend to think like we have to oscillate between these two. The, a builder mindset is one where like, we recognize that our basic power is to build. So what that means is we use our 
you know, reasoning mind to set goals, we make choices about what we want, what's like, what do we want to see in the world, right? Again, whether that's at the level of just like, I want to be able to enjoy a more leisurely commute to work. And for that, I need to make X, Y, Z changes or whether that's, you know, I want a more beautiful world and I'm going to invent an iPhone in order to, you know, put something beautiful and functional in everyone's hands, you know, at whatever level it is. Oh, that was a Steve Jobs reference. And I think we used it. <laughs> anyway, but the point is that we commit ourselves to outcomes that we can actually really envision and, and where we can see the work involved, where we at least have some conception of the work involved and we want to do the work. So like a really shorthand phrase for this, which I guess is a, uh, a pro like an old Spanish proverb from what I understand actually, Ayn Rand quotes it and I sort of see, saw it in an essay of hers, um, but it's take it, uh, sorry, it's take what you want and pay for it. Just like, that's it. Take what you want and pay for it. And if you just think about it, like if we cash that out with all that that applies, we just like have that one line in our heads all the time. Like how many problems does that sort of cut through in terms of oh, like I hate that I have to sit down and write this essay and it's like looming over me and it's singing, hang over. It's like, okay, do I actually want to have written this thing? Do I care about it? What is its value to me? Like, maybe I don't, all things considered, if I'm really honest with myself, maybe it's not worth it. And then, okay, so what's the cost of that? I have to like tell people I promised to send this to that I'm changing priorities and I'm not gonna do it and they won't pay me for it and I won't have as much money, but like I'll buy myself time to do these other things I actually wanna do, okay? or no, I really want to like have put this into words. I want this to be out there. Okay, then am I willing to do the work? <sighs> All right, like, let me buckle down, right? Or like, when am I gonna be, you know, in the right mindset to do the work? Like, I'm gonna have more energy in the morning. Let me budget my energy, right? It's just such a different way of thinking about it than either like, thou shalt write this essay and like you have, you know, like the kind of mean drill sergeant over your head or, they're just kind of like, ah, whatever, take it or leave it. It's all good. Like, don't, you know, just be chill. Like neither of those, right? It's like, what do I want? And am I willing to work for it? And it's actually really up to me. And it's not about like my moral character, ultimately. That's just those means to an end. It's not about like how I judge myself. It's about like, what do I want to experience in life? What do I want to bring into the world? What do I want to build? And sort of like everything can be anchored to that. So. That's just the, that's a great, not very. Uh, no, that was <laughs> perfect. That was a great note to end on. All of the policies and institutions that create freedom to let people make progress still require the people within those systems to actually act and create. And that mentality you've described can certainly only help. So thank you so much for sharing your insights. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been really fun and I really appreciate the chance to, to share some of this work. Thank you.